0: So this is kind of a tough gospel lesson. It's tough for adults, and I think it's tough for children, too. So it would be interesting, kids, to think about how this might apply. Could you think of one or two of your very most favorite things? Maybe it's a tablet. Maybe it's a doll. A couple favorite things. What, what might they be? My favorite two things are horseback riding and my bearded dragon. Ah, oh, horseback riding and the dragon. My bearded dragon. Okay, very good. Very good. Do you have other things? You should. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, birthdays. Birthdays. All right. You're making it tougher, Pastor Jim, because you're talking about fun things to do, not fun stuff to have. That's good. But good so let's, so let's think about if somebody came up and said to you, um, you know, you're going to have to give up birthdays. We're going to cut them out. You have to give them away. Quit having them. We feel kind of sad, wouldn't we? I would. I'm grateful for every birthday I have. <laughs> Or if we had, um, oh, I don't know, what's uh, your favorite tablet that you use, and you have all the apps and everything that you want on it, and somebody said, you know, you're going to have to give that away. I might be sad. I might actually kind of be irritated. Yeah, it would be hard. How about if someone said, you're going to have to give up fifth year's birthday, and we're going to take everything we would have spent on that birthday and we're going to give that money to a kid who has never had a birthday party ever, who has nothing, who doesn't have a pencil to write with or a piece of paper to write on. What would that do? Would that change anything? Yes, I would give the birthday to him or her. You, You would give the birthday to him or to her. That's wonderful. That's because what. I've had it the other years, and he, he or her hasn't had it at all? because right, you've had it the other years, and that other person hasn't had it at all. Thank you so much. I think that's wonderful. And that's exactly what Jesus was talking about in today's gospel lesson. Because a guy came to him who had lots of stuff, and Jesus said, you got to sell all that stuff and give it away. And he just couldn't bring himself to do it and I've been thinking a lot about this lesson for myself, um, you know, I have some stuff I'm pretty attached to. Uh, and I think, you know, almost all of us would say, well, there's great-grandma Hulkquist's soup tureen, or Aunt Ethel's cup and saucer, you know, things that really mean a lot to us. It would be hard to give those things up, wouldn't it? But maybe for the right person and the right reason, especially for someone who had nothing, and we could give up what we have. If I had had to give up something, I would give it to people who need it, and if um, I'm just giving it away to rich people, I wouldn't do it because I want to help the homeless and everyone like that. That's right. We want to help the homeless and everyone like that. We wouldn't necessarily Give it to somebody who already has a lot of stuff, but to someone who has none. That's just exactly the point that Jesus was making in today's gospel lesson. Thank you so much. Let's say a little word of prayer together, can we? Gracious Jesus, we give you thanks for your spirit that fills our heart and points us to the truth. Help us to be generous and responsible with what we have, especially towards those who have so little. Amen. Amen. All right, thanks so much. This is a tough gospel lesson. (laughs) And I can kind of hear the talk at coffee. It's like, okay, last Sunday he talked about divorce. This Sunday he's talking about money. I think we better get us somebody else. You know, these are tough lessons. They really are. Jesus, in this uh, gospel lesson today, the way Mark usually is, we jump in with both feet, no, no prelude, says Jesus is setting out on a journey at the beginning of today's gospel lesson. We're not sure about the next stop on his journey, but we know that this journey ultimately will end in Jerusalem. And so much of what we hear now in Mark for the rest of these Sundays until Jerusalem is going to happen on the road. And the rabbis and the teachers would teach as they walked along because um, couldn't check your iPhone, couldn't follow your email, couldn't listen to a CD or DVD. And so it was a way of making use of the time. And so the rabbis would teach. And so Mark, with his usual brisk pace and lack of detail, simply tells us that a man runs up, runs up and kneels in front of Jesus and asks the big question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a big question. And Jesus responds by immediately correcting what could have been this man's flattery in calling Jesus good. Did you hear it? Jesus reminds him then, after correcting him and saying only God is good, he says to the man, you know the commandments. And then Jesus gives practically the whole thou shalt not list from the second table of the Ten Commandments, that second table that emphasizes human relationships to one another. Richard Rohr, my favorite living Franciscan, taught me something this week as I was studying in preparation for this sermon. Father Rohr noticed that before Jesus says, Honor your father and mother, Jesus says, Do not defraud. Hmm, where does that come from? That's not one of the Ten Commandments. What point is Jesus trying to make? And what maybe does Jesus know about this man and how he got what he has? We don't know. But the man is probably an owner of large properties, the way the Greek reads anyway. And of course, he wants to defend himself right away. So this anonymous man responds with, Teacher, no good teacher this time. He's a quick learner. Teacher, I have kept all these commandments since my youth. And maybe he is saying, probably, since my bar mitzvah, when I was responsible for following the commandments, I have honored all these instructions. And then Mark, which is unique to the Gospel of Mark, gives us this interesting and kind of even puzzling little note that says, Jesus Looking at him, loved him. Hmm. Surely this man must have had a whole lot going for him. And Jesus says, you got it all, but you lack one thing, just one thing. And then instead of giving the man another, thou shalt not, Jesus instead says, go, sell, give. Come, follow. And this is the follow that can also be translated as to imitate. And upon hearing this, the old King James Version is really the closest to the original when it says, his countenance fell. And the guy goes away, not just shocked, but grieving. Grieving because he had many possessions. He had a lot of stuff. And the word for possessions could also imply he had a lot of property. So Richard Rohr says, this man isn't personally bad. He is simply part of a system in which he's stuck. And Jesus calls the man to distance himself from that system. Rohr says, we notice that every time Jesus challenges those who have power and wealth He never calls them personally bad. Instead, he points to the fact that they may be blinded, that they can't see because of what they're enmeshed in. Jesus tells them that they have to leave the system because otherwise they will never learn to see clearly. But it doesn't happen for this man. And this is the only example in the Gospel of Mark where a person whom Jesus calls becomes a non-follower or a non-disciple. Father Rohr says for far too long, we have preached the gospel only in an individualistic fashion. We thought we could have a personal relationship with Jesus, especially here in America, without calling into questions the systems and institutions we participate in and to which we belong, even our churches. So the good news has to be proclaimed for the individual, yes and at the same time for society, for the nation, and for the institution, whatever that institution is. A couple of years ago, at a theological conference, I heard a theologian from South America speaking. And she said, how can we preach the good news to the poor and oppressed when we are an active part of the system that keeps them poor and oppressed? That was uncomfortable. And I suppose that's a whole other sermon. And I don't want to preach it because it's too challenging. Whatever became of this man who came running up to Jesus, did he one day come to himself in his riches like the prodigal son one day came to himself in his poverty? We don't know. But Jesus sees that this is a teachable moment for the disciples. And Mark gives us this interesting detail. Jesus looks after the man for some time as he walks away from him, not running toward him, and probably eventually disappears from sight. And Jesus looks around and says to the disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And now it's time for the disciples to be shocked and perplexed. So Jesus repeats his point. And the disciples are astonished and are talking among themselves. Who then can be saved if not a rich man? And I always think this sounds like a line from Fiddler on the Roof, doesn't it? Who can be saved if not a rich man? It's time to cue the orchestra and have Tivia start to sing. But Jesus looks at the disciples yet again and says, For God, all things are possible. And then, rather than responding to what Jesus has just said, Peter, with his usual lack of impulse control, blurts out, look, we've left everything to follow you. I believe perhaps Peter, in making this statement, actually had an implicit question, which was, so what's our payoff? What's our payoff? And Jesus assures Peter, and assures us, actually, that those in fact who have left family and the inheritance behind for the sake of the good news will receive a hundredfold now with persecutions. Jesus doesn't whitewash any of it. And in the age to come, they will receive eternal life. But many who are first now will be last. And many who are last now will then be first. Lose yourself to find yourself, part with everything to receive everything. Heroic humility. I hope that all sounds familiar to us from the Gospel of Mark. So, what might that mean for us? Or perhaps I should really say so now you've heard the good news, let's hear the bad news. One venerable commentator said that the possession of material goods is an acid test of character. He says, for every 100 who can stand adversity, only one can stand prosperity. It takes a really big and good person to bear it worthily. Further, possession of material goods is a responsibility. We will be judged by two criteria, how we get our possessions and how we use them. It's a bit like that old statement, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, money corrupts too, but it doesn't have to. In fact, Dallas Willard, that Baptist professor of philosophy, says the idealization of poverty is one of the most dangerous illusions of Christians in the contemporary world. Stewardship, stewardship, not poverty, stewardship which requires possession and includes giving, that is the true spiritual discipline in relation to wealth. To possess riches is to have a right to say how they will be used or not used. To trust in riches, on the other hand, is to count upon them to obtain or secure what we treasure most. And you remember what Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. While certain individuals may be given a specific call to poverty, like St. Francis was, in general, Willard says, being poor is one of the poorest ways to help the poor. So the more we have, the more responsibility we bear. Is it money that is the root of all evil? No. What does it say in First Timothy? The, anybody help me out? The love of money is the root of all evil. Our Eastern sisters and brothers and siblings would say it's the attachment. It's the love of money. So the challenge is, we all know it's better to have some money than not to have some money. We all know that money can't buy happiness, but we know that money can stave off a certain amount of misery. At least it has in my life. And on the other hand, I think of some people that I worked with in Sun City in the retirement community. Uh, it was the wealthier part of Sun City, you know, phase three and four in Sun City West where it got more and more affluent and the houses got bigger and bigger. Uh, several times in the office in crisis counseling, I would have someone come in who had lost their spouse. And there had been grief and a sense of isolation. And time had passed. And then more time had passed. And then somebody showed up who really was lovely to be with and to spend time with and enjoy the same things with. And it filled up days beautifully and gave a lot of happy thoughts and memories. And the person would be thinking, hmm, is this someone with whom I really would like to establish a long-term relationship? And we would talk about it. And then, then, the person would often say to me, but is it me they really love, or are they just after my money? Yeah. So what they had, their possession, that was there to help them stave off misery was increasing the misery that they have. It's okay to have possessions if our possessions don't have us. We profoundly need to maintain perspective. I recall the comment of my dad, who was 97 when he died, and he would say so often, you spend the first half of your life getting all your stuff and the second half of your life trying to figure out how to get rid of it i think dad was right and i think it was my dad's very loose paraphrase of the psalm so teach us to number our days so that we may incline our hearts to wisdom wisdom sometimes less is more richard rohr my favorite living franciscan says we're all capitalists and we've expounded the gospel from the perspective of Capitalistic assumptions, which unfortunately almost always leave the ego in the center and make everything into a consumer product. That's a true picture of American systems. It's amazing how quickly, Rohr says, subtraction, the spirituality of subtraction becomes evident to people. Rohr says, I believe we're in the process of recognizing our shadow side, our addiction to addition not subtraction. How much do you need? Oh, just a little bit more. So the issue of possessions is instrumentality, isn't it? What money and possessions can be used for, not that they become an end in themselves or serve as a surrogate for some type of overweening power or, worst of all, the ground of our self-esteem. That's big trouble. Remember, the rich man was to sell what he had and give the proceeds to the poor. Recall when Luther said, our works can't make God stronger or richer, but we can use our works to strengthen and enrich our neighbor." One more observation by Dallas Willard. He said, we have a devotional life, but we don't have a life of devotion. Every human being has a kingdom. And to be responsible, there's that word again, and to be responsible to that kingdom, every human is to live under God. The great temptation is to step out of that and have a kingdom of your own. And so the great Threats to God's kingdom in my life is my kingdom. And that's where the terrible story of human life steps forward, the suffering and the failure, because individuals only hoping to get what they want and putting that as supreme, instead of subjecting their kingdom to God's kingdom. All these terrible things come about, Dallas Willard says, because of human dominion apart from God. So we lose ourselves to find ourselves. We give it away and we receive it back a hundredfold with persecutions because remember the world hates integrity. The gospel turns everything upside down and so we participate in the reign of God with who we are and what we have now now, right now, and in the age to come, eternal life. What became of the man who came running up to Jesus? We don't know. As someone has observed, he lacked only one thing. He did not lack loyalties to the commandments. He did not lack enthusiasm or sincerity. What was the one thing he lacked? He had too many things. His deficiency was his abundance. The rich man lacked one thing because he held on to what he had. True disciples may lack everything but receive one thing. The alternatives are simple, really, even though difficult for us to understand. Either in possessing all things to have nothing or in having nothing to possess all things. If this is a riddle, then the riddle becomes something of an axiom or a quotable quote, and it's repeated in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Many that are first will be last, and many that are last will be first. First.